Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Romans 8, as Mike just read, we will be in verses 5 through 8. Again, Romans 8, 5 uh, through 8. And as you turn there, I want to uh, tell you a little bit uh, of a story. So uh, when I was in seminary about uh, 10 years ago or so, I saw for the first time uh, the miniseries Band of Brothers. Uh, so some of you might have seen this. Uh, it is a uh, true account of uh, Easy Company, which was a battalion in the Airborne Division during uh, World War II. And, uh, and so I had heard from just a handful of people that uh, I would love it. I love history, and uh, I love World War II movies and those kinds of things. And so everyone had told me that I would, uh, would absolutely love it. And I had a roommate at the time who had a, uh, a copy of the box set. And so this is back before the days of Apple TV and all that kind of stuff. And so you had uh, DVDs. And so uh, he had the box set. And this particular roommate had been a uh, missionary in uh, Eastern Asia. So this particular box set may or may not have been bootlegged. It actually was bootlegged, but uh, I... Uh, I watched it uh, anyway and uh, put it in, started watching it, and I loved it. It's got Ross from Friends in like a military role. Uh, it, uh, it has uh, one of the new kids on the block. It has Tom Hanks' son. Um, it just is filled with everything you could possibly want or imagine in this World War II uh, movie. And so I started watching it, and I was just mesmerized, just hooked by the story. And so I watched the entire first disc that uh, in one setting and, uh, and decided that tomorrow when I got home from class, I was going to watch disc two. And so tomorrow, the next day, uh, I get back and, uh, and, and I put in disc two and I'm excited. But within a couple of minutes, I realized, man, this, something is off here. I, I don't understand what's happening. Uh, you ever had that feeling like you watch a season of a TV show and then it goes on hiatus and uh, you come back three months or four months later or whatever it might be, and you're having kind of trouble picking up the plot points. It felt like that, but my hiatus had only been uh, 24 hours. And so I thought, man, there's something wrong with me. I have some sort of amnesia or something like that. But uh, I started noticing that characters were different. There were characters that had been in the first disc that were not in the second disc. Uh, there were other characters who uh, all of a sudden are in this that I've never seen before, but it's obvious they have this prominent uh, role. Some people like had no beard, and then all of a sudden, like overnight, they have a full beard. There's other guys who are like rookies, and they're scared and all that, and all of a sudden now they seem like Rambo. And, uh, and so uh, I started to wonder, what's going on? This feels like the worst kind of most sloppy editing or storytelling that you can imagine. And so by the end of that second disc, I'm, I just am out. And I decide, you know what, I'm just not going to finish it. And so I go and I take out the disc and go to put it in uh, back in the sleeve in the little DVD case. Uh, and I read a little something on that disc and it says side one. And I realize, oh no, this is two-sided. I had no idea. So I had just skipped. I'd, I'd watched side one of disc one and it just put in, after that, side one of disc two. And I completely skipped over uh, side two of disc one. And whenever you're doing a lot of things, whenever you're watching a number of shows, that wouldn't have mattered 
uh, if you're watching Seinfeld or you're watching The Office or you're watching the Andy Griffith show or Matlock or something like that, whenever you're watching these sorts of things, uh, because they're not kind of, uh, they're, they're just episodic, uh, it, there's no like real rhyme or reason to watching them in a particular order. But when you're dealing with a miniseries, if you watch it out of order, all of a sudden you miss uh, a lot of the connections that you're supposed to make, and you get lost in the story. Well, Romans is like a miniseries. Romans is like a miniseries whereby we can't just simply pick up in the middle of Romans 8 and expect just reading verses 5 through 8 to understand what is happening here. And this is particularly the case with our passage this morning in verses 5 through 8, because if we miss the context, we will end up reading this entirely incorrectly. You see, one of the ways that we might uh, read this, if we're just isolating this text in and of itself, uh, kind of devoid, divorced from uh, all of the surrounding context, what goes before and what goes after, is we might look at this text and we might see that it talks about those who live according to this flesh and those who live according to the Spirit, and we might think those are two different ways that Christians can live. Christians Christians can live in the flesh or Christians can live in the spirit. And there is a sense in which that is true. We'll talk about that. Every time that you, uh, you sin, you are in some sense living according to the flesh, but not at all in the sense that Paul is using this phrase in Romans uh, 8, 5 through 8. Last week, we already saw that Christians are defined. Their very identity is marked out by saying that they are those who walk according to the Spirit. What does it mean to be a Christian according to Romans 8? It means to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's what it means to be a Christian in chapter 8. Next week, we start off by reading 8-9. We'll throw it up on the screen. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So this passage is not about two different uh, contrasting, competing ways for Christians to live. Some live in the flesh. Some live in the Spirit. Again, as we'll see, there's a sense in which that could be true, but not in the sense that Paul is meaning here. This passage instead is about two entirely different classes or groups or types of people those who are of the flesh, those who are in the flesh and thus think according to the flesh and live according to the flesh, and those who are of the Spirit or in the Spirit and thus think according to the Spirit and live according to the Spirit. So why is it so important that we embrace this, that we grasp this, that we distinguish uh, these two different ways that we could read this passage? Well, imagine for a second that you are a Christian Imagine for a second that you are a Christian, and let's imagine that you actually grieve your sin, like it grieves you, but you still struggle with sin as we all do, and you read this passage and you think, you know what, maybe this is me. Maybe I live according to the flesh. Well, then you start reading all of the different things that Paul writes about those who live according to the flesh, and you say, well, then I must be dead. I don't have life and peace. I must be in hostility with God. I must not be able to submit to God's law. I must not even be able to please God. 
And the effect is that it reverses everything we talked about last week, which is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Conviction, yes, absolutely. Where we see sin in our lives, there should be conviction. But there is no condemnation. So it's important that we recognize this distinction in the way that we read the text for the sake of our confidence and assurance and hope in Christ. So with all that in mind, let's pray and then we will dive in uh, together. As I always do, I just want to ask you to to first and foremost pray for yourself that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. Some of you probably came in not expecting to encounter the Lord or to get much out of the sermon or to be encouraged or edified. So would you ask the Lord to help you? And then would you ask that of those around you as well, whether they're your friends or family or strangers, that the Lord would give us collectively, corporately, a love for God and His Word, an ability to understand it, to be encouraged and edified by it. And then would you pray for me that the Lord would help me to be faithful to His Word. So Father, we love You. We pray that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies, that You would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love because you are good and you do good. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll start in Romans 8, 5. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In the uh, opening illustration, we talked about the importance of context, that you can't read this devoid or divorced from what we read before. You see that the, the three little, uh, three-letter word there at the beginning of this verse 4 pushes us back in the context. It actually pushes us back to verse 4, which says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that one of the challenges in interpreting Scripture is not just simply saying this is true in general, but it's actually looking what a, at what a particular passage says and says this is true of this particular passage. And so we saw this as it relates to Romans 8.4, which there is a tendency for us to read that uh, and uh, to read that as just simply saying Christ fulfills the law for us. And that is absolutely true, but that is not the point of Romans 8, 4, which is not about what Christ has done for us, but what Christ is doing in us. As we who have the Spirit begin to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, as we talked about last week, that is to love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so you and I, because we have the Spirit of God, we begin to love God and love neighbor which is the summation of the entire law. So here's the flow of verse 4 going into verse 5. Verse 4, believers obey the law of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit. Verse 5 then gives us kind of the reason or the rationale or the, uh, the, uh, the way in which that occurs. Because those who live according to the Spirit... So verse 4, believers obey the law of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit. Verse 5, because those who live according to the Spirit think according to the Spirit, whereas those who live according to the flesh think according to the flesh here. So you see this contrast uh, that's pretty simple here. Living according to and setting the mind on the flesh 
versus living according to and setting, setting the mind on the Spirit. So in order for us to understand what the verse is communicating with this contrast, we need to answer two questions. First, what does it mean to live according to something, whether that is the flesh or the Spirit? And second, what does it mean to set the mind on something, whether that is the flesh or the Spirit? So what does it mean to live according to something, and what does it mean to set the mind on something? So the first one, what does it mean to live according to something? Well, the verb that's translated there as to live is really just uh, an equative verb. It means to be. Uh, That's uh, really what it means. You could simply translate it as uh, those who are according to the flesh. Or if you really want to understand it, uh, I think a helpful thing is to read this like a pirate. All right? How would a pirate read this? They would say, those who be according to the flesh. All right? That's kind of the idea here. Those who be according to the flesh. This is not about what you do. This is about who you are. Not just the way that you live, but the way that you exist. Those who are according to the flesh. Those who be according uh, to the flesh. In other words, this is not about what you do. It's about who you are. Not so much concerned with your behavior as it is your being, your identity. That's important to note. There is this definite order, both when it comes to sin and when it comes to sanctification. And that is that your identity precedes your action. We act out of an overflow of our identity. We act out of an overflow of our identity because we identify with sin in Adam before Christ. We sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Likewise, when we receive the Spirit, our identity change, and therefore our identity changes, and therefore our actions begin to change uh, as well. We act because we are You act according to your nature, that Christianity is this inside-out reality, not outside-in. As Jesus would say, that uh, cleaning the outside of the cup doesn't help you if the inside is filthy. So the inside has to change before the outside is going to change. Your identity changes, and therefore your activities begin to change. So the concern here is your identity when it says those who live according to the flesh or live according to the Spirit, the primary concern is not the way that you act. The primary concern is your identity, who you actually are. That's why believers can't read themselves into this phrase when it says to live according to the flesh. This passage has nothing to do about nominal believers or believers who are stuck in sin. Is it possible for a believer to live according to the flesh? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. If you're asking, is it possible for believers to sin? I would say yes. It's not only possible, it's inevitable. It's even possible for a believer to fall into egregious sin. But it's not possible for a believer to be identified by their relationship to sin. To live according to the flesh in Romans 8 is to be in the flesh. It's thus not to please God according to verse 9. To not have the Spirit according to verse 10. So again, it's inevitable that a believer will sin. It's even possible that a believer would egregiously sin, but not at all in the sense that Paul is meaning here because he's talking about our identity, and your identity doesn't change as a result of your sin. We're either in the flesh or in the Spirit. We're either of the flesh or of the Spirit. And once you migrate from one kingdom to another, from Adam to Christ, from flesh 
to spirit, there is no return. It's a one-way ticket that uh, you have. So is there this ongoing battle within a believer between the flesh and the spirit? Yes, absolutely. But is that what's happening in this particular passage? No, not at all. We'll see that in Galatians 5. You see that in a number of other places. But that's not the battle that is being described here in this passage. So this text should do one of two things for us, depending upon our identity. It should both comfort those who struggle and wrestle with sin and also confront those who are apathetic about sin. In other words, if you truly grieve your sin, if you truly love and trust Jesus and you see sin in your life and it grieves you to your core, don't assume that you are in the flesh. Don't read yourself into this passage. But if you don't grieve your sin, no matter what decision you made for Christ or whatever it might be, if you're apathetic towards sin, don't assume you're in the Spirit. Don't remove yourself from this passage. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? It means to be in the flesh or to be in the Spirit, to have your nature imprinted with the influence of one of those powers or authorities. That's the first question. The second question, what does it mean to set the mind on something? As you can imagine, it involves sort of the idea of thinking upon or dwelling upon or considering, but it's really not a term that just has to do with your mind. Uh, sort of for in, in Greek thought, uh, the, uh, the, the life of the mind is kind of more internal. This would also kind of include the emotions and passions and desires. It's not only what you think about, but how you think and why you think and what you love and all of these uh, sorts of uh, things. Let me give you an illustration of this. Think back to your conversion Assuming that, uh, that you were, have been converted, assuming that you love and trust Jesus, think back to your conversion. I can remember my experience. I grew up going to church, but didn't really have the gospel take hold of me until right after college. I didn't really understand grace. I didn't really love Jesus. I didn't really have any affections for Him or for the church or for Scripture or anything else. But suddenly, at 23 years old, right out of college, suddenly I, the things that I once loved became more stale and stagnant and sort of displeasing to me. And things I once despised seemed right and good. As a kid, I used to hate going to church. I remember very vividly uh, that I kind of would calculate in my mind the number of times I thought per year I could get away with faking a sickness so as to not kind of let my parents in on the fact that I was faking uh, a sickness because I didn't want to go to church. And then all of a sudden, I'm saved. All of a sudden, I'm on my own. I'm under no obligation by my parents to go to church because I'm living on my own up here in the Dallas area, hundreds of miles away from them. And I couldn't get enough. I went multiple times on a weekend. I went to community group. I would go to a Bible study. And speaking of a Bible study, I remember as a kid, I had never once cracked open a Bible. I was familiar with the stories, Daniel and the lion's den, and Jonah and the big fish, and David and Goliath, and all those kind of things. But I had literally never in my life opened up the Bible and just started reading it. And all of a sudden, that's all I wanted to do. On my lunch break at work, I would go into a corner office, and I would just sit there eating ramen noodles and reading my Bible. 
and I'd get home and I'd just want to read my Bible. What happened to me? What happened is this. Because I was born again by the Spirit, all of a sudden my mind is set on the things of the Spirit. I want to dwell upon and consider and think about the things of God. My heart changed. And with it, my mind changed. A mind set on the flesh, set on hedonism, set on self, set on lust, set on pride, set on greed. All of these things that marked my former identity all of a sudden began to reorient around the things of the Spirit. So hopefully, you can identify with this as well. This mindset change that you were in the flesh, so you thought according to the flesh, you walked according to the flesh, but then at some point, Christ becomes real to you, and you found yourself thinking according to the Spirit, dwelling upon the things that you never had before, loving things that you never had before, hating things that you once loved, and you found yourself walking according to the Spirit and thus fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law as you suddenly loved God and loved neighbor. That's Romans 8, 4, and 5 lived out. Let's keep going. Verses 6 through 7, for, the mind, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot so in verse 5, Paul had contrasted this mindset on the flesh with a mindset on the spirit. And so in verse 6, he kind of picks up that same language to show the effects, the results, or the consequences of these two different mindsets. In these two verses, we'll see these two great principles, these two great uh, powers, and the consequences of submitting to or setting your mind on these principles or powers. And as we'll see, that the, uh, the consequences aren't trivial. The stakes couldn't be higher. That this passage is talking about life and death. Not only this life here and now, not only the death that we might die here and now. This is not just a temporal life and death. This is eschatological or eternal life and death. The mind set on the flesh is death. Paul says, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, I think it's really interesting that Paul adds peace here. He's contrasted death and life, but then he adds in this other reference, not merely life, but life and peace, which is interesting. So why does he add peace? Well, look at verse 7 there. It says that the mindset on the flesh is what? Somebody read that out. Hostile to God. The opposite of peace, enmity, hostility, warfare. That's why he adds the word peace there. And by the way, this passage is not about subjective peace, like feeling a sense of peace or having a peace of mind or something about that. This is about objective peace, peace with God in particular. In other words, your feelings are not authoritative. You might feel like you're at peace with God, and your feelings might be totally wrong because you're actually living according to the flesh because you've never actually been born again by the Spirit. You might feel like you're not at peace, and that might also be very uh, wrong as well. You might battle with thoughts of anxiety or condemnation or shame, and you shouldn't because you're actually born of the Spirit. So this passage is not about subjective peace. It's not about the feeling of peace. 
It's about objective peace. It's about whether you actually are or are not at peace as a result of having received the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying if you're in the flesh, no matter what you feel, you are at war with God. And if you are in the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of Christ, no matter what you feel, you are at peace with God. So this peace in this context isn't something to pursue. It's something that you already possess if you're in Christ. and something we cannot possess apart from Christ. It's something you already do possess if you're in Christ. And it's something you never can possess apart from Christ. That's why he says that the mind set on the flesh is death because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Not only that, but it does not and indeed cannot submit to God's law. Now, if you've been paying attention as we've been walking through Romans, this should really be no surprise to you. All the way back in chapter 1, we saw that the fundamental, innate, intrinsic response of the human heart, the intrinsic condition of fallen mankind is enmity with God, hostility toward God, that man naturally suppresses the truth about God. Man naturally suppresses the truth about God's love and goodness and power. Man exchanges the glory of God. At the end of chapter 1, we even see that man is called a hater of God. Our natural disposition toward God in the flesh, apart from Christ, is hatred. That's what we feel toward God, every single one of us. That hatred might be manifest as outright animosity, or it could be manifest as just apathy. But every one of us, apart from Christ, are in enmity with God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, at enmity with God, an enemy of God. This is not like some feud that you might have with your coworker or neighbor. They stole your sandwich out of the fridge at work, and so now you're disgruntled. They stole your parking spot in the street, and so you're mad at them. This is outright hostility. This is outright hatred between you and God. That's what this passage is saying. As a result of that enmity, it says that the mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. In fact, it cannot do so. And that sounds really strange at first if you're paying attention. It says that the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so, which makes it sound like God is kind of unjust. If you're thinking about it, if you're making all the connections here, it makes it seem like God is unjust. We've been talking about condemnation. God condemns those who do not submit to Him, and yet we just read that those in the flesh cannot submit to Him. That makes God seem capricious. If a sinner cannot submit, then why are they still responsible for their sin? It seems like you shouldn't be culpable if you're not capable. Well, lots of uh, theologians have wrestled with this, but few have done so with, I think, the precision and the clarity and the genius of uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was uh, one of the greatest preachers uh, during the uh, 18th century Great Awakening uh, here in America, probably the greatest theologian and philosopher that uh, America has ever produced. And he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, where he kind of wrestled with this question. He wrestled with the question, how can God hold mankind responsible for something that they are unable to do? 
Inability seems to cancel out responsibility. And what he does in this book, Freedom of the Will, is he distinguishes between what he calls natural inability and moral inability. Now, before we get into the intricacies, I want to give you kind of a little uh, illustration to help you see you already believe in this sort of distinction. All right? Every one of us in this room already kind of grasped this. So what we talk about might be a little technical, might be a little, little complex. Let me give you a very simplified, kind of dumbed-down version of it so you know that this is not too complex for you. This is not too technical for you. Uh, and so uh, I want you to uh, consider this. Consider that you have a kid, and, uh, and that kid, as, uh, as my kid did the other day, uh, I, I told her to do something. She looked at me. She stared at me. I told her to do it again just in case she wasn't listening whenever I had originally told her to do something, and she turned around and ran the other direction. All right? Now, imagine you have a kid that does that. Are you going to discipline them? The answer is yes, unless you just, for whatever reason, just don't discipline your kids. The answer is yes, you discipline your kid for that. Now, change the scenario. S- same scenario. You have a kid. You tell your kid to do something, and they don't do it. But now imagine that your kid has a hearing disability, and you know they didn't hear me. Now do you discipline them? No. Why? Because there's a difference there. There's a difference there. That's what Jonathan Edwards is talking about when it comes to this physical or moral inability versus uh, this sort of, uh, I'm sorry, the, the physical or natural inability versus a moral inability. Edwards would say that we are not to blame for a physical or natural inability, what he would call a natural inability. I think it's better to think of it as a physical inability. No matter how many times you might tell me to fly, I can't fly. I don't have the same nature as a bird. No matter how many times you might command me or demand that I breathe underwater, I cannot do so because I'm not a fish. No matter how many times or how loudly I might ask my two-year-old daughter to drive me to church, that would be cruel on my part. Why? Because she's physically unable to do that. So for God to command us to do something which is physically unable, physically impossible for us, that would be harsh. That would be cruel. That would be capricious. But that's not what's happening here when it says, that the mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Instead, it's what uh, Edwards would call a moral inability. Not a natural inability, not a physical inability, but a moral inability. A moral inability isn't an inability that's owing to some sort of physical limitation, but rather to a disposition of the mind or the heart or the will. He's not talking about a broken body but a heart or a mind or a will that's been bent by sin. Let me kind of give you an example of this, kind of a silly example. In the entire history of television, Ronald Ulysses Swanson is probably one of the greatest characters ever. He is a character from uh, the TV show Parks and Rec, uh, Parks and Rec, sorry, uh, and, uh, and he loves meat. If there's anything that he loves, he loves meat. He is, uh, he is the, the furthest thing you can imagine from a herbivore. He's not even an omnivore. He is just like a human carnivore. One time he goes into a restaurant, and uh, he's starving, and he tells the waiter, bring me all the bacon and eggs that you have. The waiter begins to walk away, and he says, wait, wait, I worry that what you heard me say 
was bring me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was bring me all the bacon and eggs that you have. There's another episode where uh, he has to eat a banana because his potassium is really low, and he can't get it down no matter what he does. And so he has to go and he buys a hamburger and just smushes the banana in there. Another episode where uh, somebody hands him a salad and he says, wait, there's been a mistake. You have given me the food that my food eats. That's Ron Swanson. He loves meat. Now, if you were to go and you were to set this lovely vegetable tray in front of him filled with carrots and broccoli and tomatoes, which is actually a fruit, but you get the illustration. You hand him this tray. You sit it down in front of him. Is he going to eat it? No, he won't eat it. Why won't he eat it? Because he hates it, right? That's sort of the illustration there. He won't eat it. In fact, Edwards would say he cannot eat it, not because of any physical limitation. He has the ability, the physical ability to actually eat that, but because of a deliberate act, a deliberate inclination of the will, that's the fallen human heart as it relates to God's Word. It will not submit, and because it will not, it cannot. So why do we say cannot, though? Why not just leave it at will not? Why does the passage say it does not submit to God's law? Indeed, it cannot. Here's something I think it's really important for you to understand. That's just a general theological principle that's going to really help you as you understand sin and sanctification That is, you cannot do what you do not want to do. You cannot do what you do not want to do. I would go so far as to say that you always do what you most want to do. You always do what you most want to do. Now, you might think, that's silly. I do things all the time that I don't want to do. But what Edwards would say, what Paul would say, what I would say is to ask you to ask the question, but why did you do that thing that you didn't want to do? I cleaned my room this morning. I didn't want to clean my room. Yeah, but did you want a spanking? Or did you want time out? Or did you want your in-laws to make fun of the fact that you have a dirty room? Whatever it is, you wanted something more than you didn't want to clean your room. I got up and ran five miles this morning, and I didn't want to run five miles this morning, but why did you do it? Because you want good cardiovascular health, or you want to lose weight, or you want to be a good steward of your body, or whatever it might be. Even when you do what you don't want to do, you only do it because there's something else that you do want. Again, You only and always do what you most want to do. You always pursue your highest desire. And again, this is really important for us if we're going to understand sin and sanctification. Why is it that you sin? Fill in the blank with whatever sin it is that you struggle with. Why do you struggle with that sin? The answer is because you want to. Because you want to. If you look at porn, it's because on some level you want porn more than you want purity. If you say, I want to read my Bible, and yet you never find yourself actually reading the Bible, 
It's because you want to work long hours or you want to play Fortnite or you want to watch Netflix or whatever it is more than you want to read the Bible. Why do you do what you do? Because you want to always. All sin is ultimately about you wanting something more than you want obedience. Wanting something more than you want sanctification. Wanting something more than you want Jesus. You see, you are like metal. And your will is like a magnet. It's always going to go toward your desires. Whichever way that magnet turns, you will surely go. So that's why if we could say that man will not, it's fair to say that they cannot. You cannot do what you will not do. This is an aspect, by the way, of what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity, which is not the idea that man is as as bad as he possibly could be. We could be Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy or Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot or something like that. We could be worse uh, people than we actually are. That's not what total depravity means. We covered all the little intricacies of what we do and don't mean in theological equipping, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, we also did a sermon on Romans 3, 9 through 20, where we really kind of uh, parsed through some of these uh, uh, nuances as well, so we won't spend as much time on it here except to just kind of give you the kind of base idea of total depravity, which is that every single part of every single person, Christ excluded, every single part of every single person has been affected by sin, has been affected by the fall. Your minds, your bodies, your hearts, even your desires or your wills. So, Jeff, are you saying that we don't have free will? Well, I might be. It depends on what you mean by free will. Do you mean that you have freedom to do anything? Does it mean that you have freedom to go stand up, uh, to go climb up on this roof and to jump off and to fly? No. Why? Because you have limitations of your nature. Can you go swim underwater and breathe? No. Why? Because you have limitations of your nature. And if that's true of our physical natures, how much more is that true of our spiritual natures as well? Those in the flesh are enslaved to their own desires and will. We've talked about that as we've gone through Romans 6 and 7, this imagery of slavery, the fundamental sort of orientation of mankind. Those who are in the flesh those who aren't in Christ, they only desire sin. See, their only conflict is which sin to pursue. They have the freedom to pursue this sin or this sin, but every moment of their life, they're chasing after sin. They wake up each morning, they open the cupboard, and they get to choose which uh, cereal of sin they want. This morning, it's going to be tricks. This next morning, it's fruity pebbles. Maybe occasionally it's shredded wheat, whatever it might be. But regardless, they're always going to be eating sin cereal. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Let's go to the next verse and see the results of this, what we call immoral inability. Romans 8.8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this kind of follows as a natural consequence of what we've already said. It stands to reason that if those in the flesh are hostile to God and they do not submit to His rule and authority, then they cannot please God. 
no matter how many times you listen to a sermon, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how much you might give to a church, no matter how much you give to a charity or how often you might pray or if you've read the entire Bible in Greek and Hebrew, memorized the entire Old Testament, if you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Now that might sound a bit extreme to you, especially if you wrestle with legalism. You might think, surely God is a little bit impressed Surely he's a little bit impressed with my giving statement. I give quite a bit. Surely he's impressed with my little attendance badges that I wear on my vest every time I come to church. Surely he's impressed with my discipline or morality. But this text says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me give you a little illustration that might help. We started this sermon by talking about Band of Brothers, which again was set in World War II. So I want to kind of use that same setting Suppose you're a Jew living during the 40s and you're imprisoned in Auschwitz where over one million of your brothers and sisters were massacred. And imagine that one day Adolf Hitler himself comes and visits Auschwitz. He visits the camp. And he takes a liking to you for some reason. He thinks that you are just uh, swell. And for some reason he has the commanding officer give you some gifts. He has the commanding officer come and bring you a, a, a new change of clothes and a new pair of shoes because he saw that you didn't have any. And he told the commanding officer, oh, by the way, also give him some pieces of chocolate and bring him a book or two. And he writes you a handwritten note and signs it. And he writes, hang in there, buddy. And he draws a picture of a cat because everybody knows that Hitler loves cats. I don't like cats. That's why I threw that in there. So that, he does all that for you, right? He's written you a note, handwritten. He's given you chocolate and clothes and books and all that kind of stuff. But he doesn't release you or your family or your friends. You're still enslaved within this extermination, this concentration camp, starved and beaten and worked to death day after day after day. Your friends and family are still marched off to the gas chambers and the crematoriums. Now, would that chocolate, would that note, would that win you over? Would you all of a sudden have your opinion of Adolf Hitler changed as a result of a few trinkets? Of course not. So why would we ever think that our feeble efforts to pacify God would actually satisfy Him, would actually please Him? What are our little trinkets to Him as we rebel against Him, as we resist him as we refuse to submit to His will or to His Word as we live in constant rebellion and revolution against Him. What are our little trinkets to God? Those who are in the flesh will not submit, so they cannot submit, so they cannot please God. The problem lies in the human heart. And we cannot give ourselves heart transplants. You might be able to stitch up a wound Dr. Steve, who's a dentist, one of our elders here, he might be able to pull one of his own teeth, but no one could actually perform a heart transplant on themselves. And that's kind of the imagery that the Bible uses for what needs to happen for you and me, for those who are in the flesh to become those who are in the spirits. They need a heart 
transplants. Over the next couple of weeks, we will spend time kind of fleshing out, uh, no pun intended, kind of what it means for uh, us to please God in the area of sanctification. But in the context of this passage, in the context of Romans 8, there's only one way to please Him. And like all good church answers, it has to do with Jesus. So think back for a second to Jesus' baptism from the Gospels. Jesus goes down into the water. He comes up out of the water, and a voice speaks, the voice of the Father. And do you remember what He says? He says, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus pleases the Father. You cannot please Him in and of yourself. Those in the flesh cannot please God. So in the context of Romans 8, in this section in particular, the only way to please God is to be in something other than sin, and that is to be in Jesus. Jesus fully and perfectly pleases the Father, and if you're in Him, then all that is His is yours, including the love and joy and pleasure of a good Father. So one of the things that's helpful sometimes to do in a passage that's just connected with all of these connectors, like for or therefore, is sometimes it's helpful to read it backwards. I want to do that for us as we begin to wrap this up. Readings, uh, reading Romans uh, 8, 1 through 8 backwards, we see that those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they do not and cannot submit to God. In fact, they're hostile to Him, and therefore they abide in death with minds set on the flesh, and so they live according to the flesh. But, contrasted with that, you have those in the Spirit, and they have life and peace because their minds are set on the Spirit. And they walk according to the Spirit and thus fulfill the law, demonstrating that they are no longer under condemnation but are justified. So we see here these two competing realms or rules or authorities, flesh and spirit, two conflicting ways of being and living and thinking, and two contrasted definite, uh, destinies or inheritances, death versus life. That's Romans 8, 1 through 8. I want to close with this. In a, a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to turn... 40, so in preparation of this sort of uh, cultural milestone or whatever, uh, I've been doing all the things that they say you got to do. You got to go get a physical and you got to get blood work done and all of these uh, sorts uh, of, uh, of things. Well, this passage, in a sense, is kind of like a physical. It's kind of like blood work that you have done. Maybe you have been exhibiting symptoms of the flesh in your life. Maybe there are symptoms of sin in your life that just seem recurring and incessant. How do you know if that lingering spiritual cough is just a lingering cold or if it's something much, much more? Will you get it checked out? And that's what Romans 8, 1 through 8 does for us. It takes these common symptoms of sin and helps to describe and define what it is that we are seeing. You see, lingering sin is expected in the life of a believer, but where there is an inability to submit or an unwillingness or an apathy or hostility toward the things of God, that's a sign of something much deeper than just lingering sin. But here's the good news. Here's the good news this morning. Whether your symptoms are indicative of a spiritual cold or spiritual cancer, the answer is the exact same, faith and repentance. Whether what you are dealing with is the fact that you're still living 
like you are in the flesh, where you're actually, whereas you're actually in the spirit, or if you're actually still in the flesh, your answer is the same, faith and repentance. Because, as we read last week, God has sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, that sin might be condemned in the flesh. God sent His Son as an offering for sin that we might be delivered from the dominion of sin and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So with that hope in mind, let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. Just confess, it's a difficult word for those of us who are in the Spirit. It's not really applicable to us. It doesn't really deal with us. And yet, it's true and sufficient and authoritative and trustworthy, and so we're grateful for an opportunity. And I pray that You would diagnose our hearts, Lord. Can't help but thinking there is the possibility that someone walked in this morning thinking that they were in Christ, and yet your spirit might move through this passage to convict them and show them that they are not, that they are playing a game. So I pray that you would awaken them. And those of us who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that there would be no sense of condemnation from this passage, that we would be convicted where there's sin in our lives, but we would repent and experience the freedom and hope of the gospel. We pray these things because you are a good Father who gives good gifts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.